Thank you. Good morning. We're in James 1. We've got another three verses to tackle. It's going to be a challenge. James 1, we're going to do verse 9 through 11 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would minister. Holy Spirit, that you would speak in this time. Come on, more than the, the, the thoughts of a man, we need the thoughts of God this morning. More than the gifts of a man, we need the gift of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We need your ministry, Holy Spirit. We come to this word with reverence, with expectation, with hearts of worship. And our, our corporate cry this morning is, speak to us, O oh God. We love you. There's no one else for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, baby. You say amen. Well, St. Anthony was the kind of chief premier desert father, um, an Egyptian monk who was born around 250 AD. He inspired kind of a movement of, uh, of monks to, to really give themselves to the, to the Lord. Athanasius, um, sometimes called the black dwarf by his enemies. I don't think that's politically correct today. Um, but he had dark skin and he was little. Okay. So that's what they called him. Um, Athanasius was the the man who who really argued against Arianism at the Nicene uh, Council of Nicaea. Arianism was a heresy that was rampant, and Arianism taught that Jesus was not God eternally, but that He was a created little God with a little G. And Arianism was really catching a lot of traction. And Athanasius, again the black dwarf, sometimes uh, he's referred to as Athanasius against the world, um, is going to argue down Arianism for the entirety of his life. But Athanasius is going to be exiled. The government's going to essentially persecute him five times. On five occasions, he's driven out of the cities where he's ministering. And oftentimes Athanasius finds rest in the desert with St. Anthony. Now St. Anthony, um, again, born 250 AD, Athanasius wrote, wrote his biography after he passed. And that biography became standard reading for any man or woman who decided to lay their lives down for the Lord for hundreds of years. You can still get it today. You should read it. Um, uh, the biography of St. Anthony by Athanasius. Well, Anthony was born very, very wealthy. He was actually a bit, the, the biography talks a bit about, um, he's a bit of an introvert. His parents were very successful, and he didn't really have much of a need for social life. He kind of just hung with his parents, hung out at home. I didn't really have any desire to be out in the world. He just was kind of a homebody. Um, but he would go to church with his parents every week. His parents were Christians. Uh, but Anthony's parents died when he was very young. And again, they were rich. They were, they were very, very wealthy. Anthony had one younger sister. Both parents passed and Anthony was left with the entire estate. Um, he's a young guy, a quiet guy, uh, not a huge social life, now left with a lot of money. And so Anthony began to, um, kind of walk through his normal patterns of life and he would go to church. Uh, every week like he did would with his parents and and one day he was walking to church and he was thinking about all this money that he now had and he didn't 
really have any life ambitions or goals or what is he going to do now that his family's gone, essentially? Um, and so he's walking to church asking the Lord, what do you want me to do with all this wealth? And he walks into church, and as he walks in, uh, what's being read from the Gospels is Jesus saying to the rich young ruler, um, you remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I lack? Um, and Jesus says, sell everything you have. The scripture actually says, Jesus looked on him and loved him and said, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, Anthony's sitting in church listening to this read, and he believed it was the providence of God that this portion of scripture was being read at this moment in his life where he was kind of struggling, wondering what to do next. And so Anthony sells everything, um, all that he has, something like uh, 350 acres of land that was fertile and was used for crops, 350 acres, sells, gives all of that money to the poor, and Anthony moves to the desert. Um, he begins to be uh, kind of mentored by whatever ascetics, men and women of prayer who lived in the desert would mentor him. Uh, the desert we, we think of monasteries today as, um, being these, like, kind of peaceful place that's quiet. And, um, I call my house the daycare. Okay. So I say, I'm getting ready to go to the daycare. Um, a monastery sounds real nice most days. Okay. Um, we think of the monasteries again as just being a place of peace and comfort and rest. Um, but that was, that was not the desert for the early ascetics or the early monks. The desert was the place where Jesus wrestled with Satan. Okay, where Jesus fasted. And so they didn't go to the desert for to kind of look on the beauty of creation. They went to the desert because in early Christian life and in early Jewish thought, there was an idea that demonic powers um, kind of roamed in the desert, in the dry places. You can actually find this in church writings. It's an interesting thought. And so they, they went to the desert to be alone, to pray. The early, the early kind of monks, ascetics, uh, desert fathers were intercessors. They were people of real prayer. They spent their days in prayer. They went to pray. Uh, they went to fast and they went to wrestle down their own sinful nature. So it was a lot about pursuing holiness. Now, Anthony, um, he, he, his entire life as a desert father, as a man who was trying to live in solitude, pretty much existed um, as being chased around by a hundred people who wanted him, them to pray for him or teach or uh, minister to them as they were sick or cast out demons. And so in one sense, Anthony really wanted to be a man of solitude, but there were always people around him, even living around him. Um, but he, he really became uh, a mentor to very many. He, he loved Paul's words where Paul said, I die daily. And he ministered again to Athanasius on several occasions as Athanasius is uh, wrestling. Anthony had, Athanasius in Anthony's biography says this. He says, there are a lot of um, stories about about Anthony uh, wrestling with demonic powers. There are stories about Anthony being locked in a cave or in a cell um, and there being demonic entities come show up as beasts or as wild animals um, tormenting, trying to torment him. And there are these stories of Anthony uh, kind of standing in faith, rebuking, trusting the Lord. Um, Athanasius said, all the stories that you've heard of Anthony are true, and I don't have the time. It's kind of that John thing. We don't have the time to tell of even more of what he did. But Anthony saw many visions. Anthony had prophetic encounters, saw a lot of sick people healed. People would come with their sick. Anthony would pray. There was a man named Balakias. 
who was an Aryan general, one of these heretics, and he was persecuting Christians. He was beating the women, um, was a violent general. Anthony wrote Balakias a letter and said, you must repent or wrath is coming on you quickly. Balakias took the letter, he threw it on the ground and spit on it and said to the men who delivered the letter, uh, give me just a little time and I'm coming for Anthony himself. Five days later, Balakias was riding with another ruler on horses that were very well trained. They were very well um, disciplined and the horses actually began to play and fight. And one horse slung Balakias off of him while the other horse um, attacked, physically attacked Balakias. He died several days later from the wounds. Anthony once was in prayer in a place of intercession. He saw a vision with great clarity of mules um, surrounding the table of the Lord and beginning to kick the table of the Lord. And when he came out of the vision, the, the monks around him begged Anthony, please tell us what you saw, because Anthony was crying and praying. And Anthony said that there would be, without a doubt, an attack from the Arians, from the heretics. They would persecute the church, they would crush the church, but they would not succeed, that God would raise up a man and men to push back against them. And you see that in Athanasius, that word absolutely came to pass. And so Anthony became this picture to the early church. Again, the early church loved him. Became this picture to the early church of what it meant to leave all of life behind, humble yourself, and live in the secret place with God. To wrestle down the flesh, to wrestle down demonic powers, and to walk in intimacy with the Spirit. Now, as we turn to the book of James, we're going to read a passage today that seems a bit foreign to us. James, James's views on the poor, what he'll call the poor and the rich, they don't always sit well um, for modern Western readers. Now, we do live in a society where uh, we have more, what is the technical term? We, we have a greater ability to ascend the economic ladder than people of the past, right? In, uh, in James's day, if you were born poor, a lot of times you were kind of locked into your position on the socioeconomic ladder. We, we are proud of the fact that in our nation in particular, many are able to, to, to start poor and to work hard, sweat, and, and end up wealthy. And that actually is a beautiful thing, although it may be a little more nuanced than we're willing to give standing for. Um, but in James's world, without a doubt, there was a little bit more restriction on where you were. If you were born poor, you probably would live poor for the rest of your life. And what James is getting at today in our text is that, um, is that a lot of times your standing economically is directly related to your power, your influence, and your identity socially. And what James is going to get at is that in the church, we don't rest in our economic or social standing. Our identity is not in our wealth, Anthony. Your identity is not in the fact that you're very rich, but your identity must be in your position in God. Your call, what you're called to, is not limited by or or. or accelerated by your economic standing. In other words, your anointing, your calling has nothing to do with the way that the world or culture sees you. James is thinking about, um, think, think of, of, of Samuel going to anoint David. Do you remember, do you remember this, this story? Um, Jesse's sons come and there are some that look strong and handsome and Samuel says, this must be the one. And God says to Samuel, I don't look on man the same way that you look on man. But he looks on the inner things of the heart. And James is going to get at the church with this. He's going to say, you, when, this is a theme of James, okay? 
a theme. James is going to say, church, when you gather together, you better not gather with prejudice. We don't look down on the poor. We don't celebrate the rich. We look at each other with spiritual eyes, members of the kingdom. The church, and when you, when you go to a great banquet, this is a theme in Jesus' teaching. I'm just talking now because this microphone uh, is mine. Uh, <laughs> when you think of Jesus' ministry, when he says things like, when you go to a banquet, don't, don't sit at the highest place in the table. Sit, sit lower. Um, and then let the master of the banquet call you up if he wants. So, so socially, what we know is that when they went to public gatherings, they were even seated on the basis of their kind of social standing, right? There was this very much a culture of where do you fall on the ladder? James is going to say the ladder is rubbish. The ladder does not exist in the church. You can be wildly unsuccessful financially and be wildly powerful in prayer. And the church probably needs those people to pray more than we would need someone who is wildly successful economically who doesn't have a prayer life. Right? We actually need people who walk in the power of the Spirit. Now let's read from James, and I'll do my best to unpack these ideas. James says in in chapter 1, verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation. First, let the lowly brother boast in his Exaltation. Who is James speaking to? And what does he mean by lowly brother? Well, the second line of the text where he says the rich man, it kind of clarifies for us who James is talking about here. Um, you think of wisdom literature. Again, James has written his wisdom literature. You think of Proverbs. It's going to always compare and contrast, right? The, the wise and the foolish. The humble and the proud. This is a... Uh, uh, A characteristic, a trait of wisdom literature is to compare and contrast. So first he says the lowly brother should boast in his humiliation. Then he says the rich man, or the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. The rich boasts in his humiliation. So it's clear that when he says the lowly brother, he means the poor. And when he says the rich man, he means the rich. But he's not just referring to their economic, um, how much wealth they've obtained, he's referring to their standing in society again with the idea that the poor man is not just lacking cash, but he's also lacking power and influence. Does this make sense? So the first person he's talking to, the antithesis of the rich man is the poor man who is who doesn't have access to wealth, but he also is not influential in, in, in first century Roman society. So we start with the poor man, the lowly brother, again, talking about his social standing. And, and it's likely that, that James is writing to the church in Jerusalem. We've said this. He's writing primarily to Jews in Jerusalem, first century 
We know from Acts chapter 11 that in this time period, Agabus prophesied that there would be a great famine. Do you remember Paul is going to like collect money from the Gentile churches to bring to Jerusalem to aid the, the poor Jewish? He says at the book, end of the book of Romans, if we've, if you've benefited from the blessings of Israel, then we ought to bless them financially. If you benefited from their spiritual blessing, we ought to care for the church at Jerusalem and bless them financially. What we see from the New Testament, when you read it carefully, is that the Jerusalem church was poor, was, was very poor. So we've got a famine. We've got um, the idea that becoming a Christian, again, was not just uh, a religious conviction. It was, a, it was an entire identity shift in society. And so uh, Christianity at this point is obviously not popular. They're, they're considered a sect of Jews. They're Jewish people whose families are Jews. They've, they're considered to be a, uh, members of a sect of Judaism that is not celebrated. They're, they're, they're not considered heretics per se, but they're considered, um, outcasts, schismatics. Their families reject them. And so the scriptures even talk about this. When you're in financial hardship, sometimes what you really need is a friend, right? To give you a job. Like relationships really help when you're struggling economically. Um, when you got the right person to call, really, really helps shape things out. Um, but for these people, uh, no, nobody's answering their call. Okay. They've become the scum of society. So they're, they're humble. They're poor. They're the outcasts of society. And James seems to be talking to these Jews who again are, are really, really struggling. Being poor and Christian was what we would call a double whammy. So what James says is let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What does it mean to boast? What does he mean by boast here? The word literally means to glory in, to take great pride in, to celebrate. So the poor, lowly, humble person should glory in, take great pride in, celebrate, tell others of, carry himself with excitement about his exaltation. So to culture, these people become the scum of society, the dirt of the earth. But these Christians should actually glory in this truth that they are eternally exalted in Christ. James is saying, you may be poor, you may be insignificant, you may feel looked over, you may feel stomped on top of, but you need to learn to glory in this truth. Christ Jesus has chosen you for eternity. You will have the kingdom of God. You are poor in this life, but you will be rich in God forever. God has exalted you to the status of son and daughter. So what we see is James is very much saying to the oppressed, to the belittled, to the, to the humble, to the lowly. He's saying, when you come in the church, when you come to this gathering, you are not less than anyone. Christians who are walked in, on in this life, Christians who feel belittled, who feel looked over in this life, should not view themselves as being less than anyone. He's saying to the, to the lowly, hold your head high in Christ. Glory in this. 
Eternal exaltation. Jump for joy. Live in ecstatic expectation. The world has looked you over, but Jesus has set his eyes upon you. Let the lowly boast. Now, there are a few nuances here that I think we could kind of tease out from the text. Um, People who grow up in poverty or people who have experienced poverty can who are on the on the lower end of social standings can become embittered can begin to view themselves so sometimes in the christian world we talk about like a like an orphan spirit or a pauper spirit the idea that nothing ever goes well for you that all you're ever going to uh, be dealt is a bad hand that you are going to experience tragedy after tragedy and you actually begin to think of yourself as kind of like i guess you could call it a victim's mindset as as being less than and james is saying first um You have the ultimate favor lavished upon you, the love of Christ Jesus. He is saying, who cares about whether or not this society celebrates you? All the angels of heaven rejoice at your salvation. He is saying, who cares if culture uh, loves you or wants to glory in your great personality? Heaven bends, the Father bends to hear your prayers. So he's coming after this kind of embittered um, poverty spirit, pauper spirit, orphan spirit that sometimes those of us who have struggled financially can begin to embrace. We can become embittered. So James is saying when you come into the congregation of the church, um, you may be used to uh, you may be used to always sitting on the floor, but here you can sit in a chair. Um, you may be used to always needing to be obedient, but here you're a brother or a sister. You're, you're not the slave of anybody. Um, does that make sense? We, we're all equal, equal at the foot of the cross. And, and again, in the church, you guys hear me. I know this is very practical, but I'm a very practical man. Um, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> I can't tie my own shoes. Um, James, James is saying too, that sometimes what we do is when we come together as a church, we look to the people that are the most successful in the eyes of the world for leadership. Um, there's this idea sometimes that, you know, maybe in our nation, we've greatly overlooked like the trades. Um, maybe maybe you, you're a trade worker or maybe you're a school teacher or maybe you're a cosmetologist and you wouldn't consider yourself to be highly administrative or successful in the world of executive leadership. But when you come into the church, that really doesn't matter. If God has called you to be an intercessor, um, that that's what God's called you to. No no one cares what you do for money. The The only thing we care is whether or not you're obeying what God has called you to do. So, right, like there are no school teachers in our nation who are rolling in the dough. Um, but if God's called you to teach school, you better be teaching school. So in the church, if you're called to preach or if you're called to prophesy, we don't, we don't care how much money you make, right? Like, is it from the Lord? That's the, that's the question that we ask. So sometimes those of us who haven't excelled necessarily in the, in the 
business world, we come to the church and assume that God doesn't want to use us because maybe our place of work doesn't want to use us. And in the church, we don't really care about anything other than how has God anointed you and what is God calling you to in this season? And if God puts his hand on you, you better stand up and prophesy. Don't you blame anybody else. If you're living in this embittered spirit of, oh, I never have favor. If God's calling you to preach or to teach or to lead in prayer and you don't do it, that's on you. That ain't on me. Do you hear what, do you hear what I'm saying? You've got to step into the call, step into the anointing and the favor of the Lord. You don't get to live with this kind of pauper woe is me mindset in the kingdom of God. You're commanded to boast in your exaltation that Christ has chosen you. So let's turn from there. That, that one feels uplifting. Um, and we like that, right? Like we like uplifting. The second one feels a little more harsh. Um, so here we go to the rich man. James says, you need to learn to boast in your humiliation. The rich man again here, not just talking about his economic standing, but his, his kind of social prowess, his ability to, uh, to come to power, to come to influence. He's very much saying to the rich man uh, the same thing that he's saying to the poor. You cannot let your identity, your sense of self-worth, your exalted place in the socioeconomic scale bleed into the way that you really view yourself or view your relationships within the church. When the rich man walks into the congregation of the, of the church, he does not hold his head any higher than the poor man. When the rich man walks into the table of the Lord... Again, in, in, in this day, if you go to a banquet, to a wedding, and you're very successful, you're sitting at the head of the table, and the poor man may be at the bottom of the table, he might be sitting on the ground. At the table of the Lord, we, we, we come on an equal playing field. Okay, and so the, there's a joke among pastors around here. Um, I didn't make this joke up. I have no claim on this joke, so if you're offended by it, it was probably Pastor Gilbert who was before me, and you can email him, okay? Um, this was probably him. Um, but there's a joke. I've heard many pastors here say it. That sometimes on Hilton Head, I forget what they call it. There's a term for it. But it, the term is basically like it used to be important. Um, so people who were highly successful in their careers, who move here and retire, but then when they go to church, they really want to still be seen as the most important person in the room. There, there's, a, there's a term for it. Like it's used to be. Um, which The chiefs. Chiefs, not Indians. Yeah, that idea. Um, and, and so that... That, that concept of sometimes when, when you're used to being heard, when you are used to being the most important person in the room, and in a business setting, if you're the executive leader, like your employees need to listen to what you have to say, right? Like that, that's, that's good and right. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Um, but in the church, just because you're the executive leader in the business world doesn't mean you get to come into the church and throw your weight around. And if you can't pray... You have no prayer life. I'd much rather have the poor man who washes dishes praying than you. Okay? Like it actually has nothing to do with your ability to minister in the spirit. Or And so sometimes in our culture in particular, those who have excelled in, in business, and, and there's a, I think that there's a problem with even in church leadership, that pastors and ministers seem to be craving the next great business leadership book and that somehow the, the, what it means to excel in, in the faith is that is equal to what it ex- means to excel in the business world. And so Paul, James is saying here to the rich man, when you walk into the church, boast glory in your humiliation. 
Again, being a Christian in this hour was not something to be proud of. Not in the sense that anyone in culture was excited for you. Oh, you got saved? Congratulations. Like that just wasn't happening. And so to be rich and successful... To be, we we know of we know that there were there were many military leaders who came to faith. There were many governors who came to faith. There were a lot of successful people who were coming to faith uh, in the first century. When they came to faith, it wasn't again. It wasn't something that the, their family was. They were shouting with joy about. It was they were looked down upon. They were their flesh, whether they would admit it or not. Their flesh would have been humiliated. Okay, so James is saying here, you did not come to this church, to serve a king born in a palace. You came to serve the king who was born in dirt. And this master, he was not crowned with gold and silver and jewels. He was crushed with the crown of thorns. He's called the man of sorrows. He's called the man of suffering. You've now come to belong to one who the world did not view as being powerful. He was actually rejected and mocked and scorned and your king is the king of humiliation and so you need to learn to begin to boast in the fact to glory in the fact that although the world once loved you you're now loved by the king of suffering and you need to be excited about the fact that that you actually have have come to lower yourself under the hand of jesus now I thought about this this week because this is a theme in James and just interested in why James wants to keep talking about this. But I think, think of this with me. Do you remember when Jesus is, uh, on several occasions in all the, almost all the gospels, maybe not in John, um, when Jesus is ministering before crowds, the Pharisees will say things like, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is this man to think he can teach us? Isn't he the carpenter's son? And, and, and isn't his mother Mary and his brothers, again, Mark 4, aren't his brothers James and Judas and Simon? Isn't, isn't this man the son of a trade worker? How dare he teach us? Now, imagine James standing there. We actually know that he was standing on several occasions. And people saying of Jesus as he teaches, isn't he Joseph's son? And James feeling, why would you belittle us on the basis of our father's work? We, what we do know, this is... Wildly accepted, it's plain. Joseph has passed at this point. So Joseph's not around anymore. Um, that's, that's very plain from the scriptures. And so James's biological father has passed away. And his older brother, who James doesn't even follow at this point, is teaching. And people are rejecting him, mocking him on the basis of his father's work. Now, imagine James now, after he's come to the Lord after the resurrection, saying that the world, many in the world, rejected him because he did not have social economic power. They expected the king to be born of great royal standing and to be celebrated with strength of the arm. But Jesus is, again, when you study the Old Testament and we start to see these people like Gideon leading, um, you remember Gideon feeling weak. And then again, David is one. David's not, not the strongest, although obviously he's a great warrior. Um, we see these people that God's choosing them, not on the basis of their, what we see with the eye, but God's choosing them on the basis of what's hidden in their character and their heart. And Jesus is the epitome of that. Many people walk by mocked, scorned, spit on, 
the king of heaven, because he did not have socioeconomic standing. And so I think James, as he writes, even carries a bit of um, context from hearing Jesus mocked because of Joseph's work. So James is, again, going to say, you need to boast in your humiliation. Anthony, this is really why I wanted to talk to you about Anthony today. Anthony, uh, living in the desert, he gets a letter from um, a group of of um, emperors, leaders, government officials wrote to him. Now, the younger monks were so impressed that Roman officials would write letters to, to Anthony. They were so impressed. And Anthony refused to open it. He said, why are, you, why are you balking over a letter written by a man when God wrote us his holy word and you don't want to balk over that? He was saying, why don't you read your Bibles and stop walking around with this letter? Super excited about it. Um, and I, I like that about Anthony. I think that was a good response. Um, they tell Anthony, the men who wrote you are actually Christians and they're asking for advice on how to live out Christianity and their roles and their positions of status. So when they pressed Anthony, Anthony said, I'll open it because they're Christians. And uh, this is how Anthony responded to Christian government leaders, men who had just become Christians. Anthony wrote this back. Do not think much of the present. Rather, remember that the judgment is coming and know that Christ alone was the true and eternal king. So to officials... Don't think much of this hour. Judgment's coming. You may feel like a king, but Christ Jesus is the only true king. And then he begged them to be merciful and to give heed to the justice and to care for the poor. So he begs them to carry the character and the humility of Christ. Now, I think Anthony, being a bit of an uh, aristocrat himself, having lots of money in his early day, he's not so impressed with the, the, the higher men of society writing him letters. But when he gets the letter from the Roman officials, he says, make sure you don't boast in this position. Jesus is the king. Life is short. Judgment is coming. Walk in graciousness and humility. Care for the poor. So James is going to say, to the rich man, boast in your humiliation and remember that the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So here we're reminded, James is painting a picture. Um, there, there are particular flowers in the Middle East where they, uh, oh, we have flowers like this here. I can't think of what they're called. Where they bloom very quickly, right? They're beautiful. They bloom like this, um, but, but give it a day and a half and the thing withers away. Um, so James is saying, think of the fields and the way they bloom with beauty, but you can watch that scorching heat begin to suck the life out of the thing. And he says, this is exactly what your life is like, rich man. It is beautiful in this hour. You're successful. It, it feels like blessing from God. And in a sense, it is blessing from God. But you need to remember that your life is short and you can die in the pursuit of wealth and not take a lick of it with you to the grave. It's very much what James is saying. You ain't taking that money in your casket. He's encouraging them. Why not perish pursuing Christ? Why not spend your short life, your numbered days, preaching this gospel, serving the king? Is James here saying that the rich man should have no work ethic? Absolutely not. 
Is James here saying uh, that uh, we shouldn't be diligent or save our money or be wise with our finances? Absolutely not. He's just saying that if you are successful and, and if you are wealthy, don't put your identity in your standing and make sure you use your wealth to advance the kingdom. I was um, thinking about this this week because I had made some comments about the prosperity gospel. I stand by my comments. I think the prosperity gospel is gross. There's that. Um, but I was thinking about the, the idea that the scriptures don't teach us that, that poverty is any more spiritual than, than success. Okay, so, so again, the idea is not... Um, I think God does still call people to sell everything they have, give it to the poor, and get on the mission field. I think God still calls people to do that. Um, he doesn't call everyone to do that. And so the, the idea here is that you have to be obedient to what God asks of you. And so what we see is there are wealthy people in Scripture. I was thinking about this, trying to think this through. Um, obviously, in the Old Testament, we see lots of wealthy people. Job, Abraham was wealthy. Um, but in the New Testament in particular, I really love to think about there, there were several wealthy women who were funding the ministry. Even in Jesus's life, there were some wealthy, prominent women who were helping to fund financially the ministry. But then I started to think about Lydia. Do you remember Lydia was a dealer of purple cloth, meaning that she was a woman who dealt with textiles. She was a businesswoman, successful businesswoman with lots of cash. And Paul comes and preaches the gospel to her, and she gives her life to the Lord. And do you remember what it says in the latter chapters of Acts when Paul uh, won her to the Lord? She says, if you consider me a sister in the Lord, you're coming to my house today. She's saying, how dare you spend the night anywhere else other than my house? You're staying with me, Paul, period. And then the scripture tells us that the church planted in their city, do you know where the church was held? In Lydia's house. She was a wealthy woman who owned a house. That was a big deal. But her house was the house church. She, she, she was wealthy, prominent, and successful. And she steward, she obviously stewarded her money well. She obviously was a good businesswoman. I don't know if you've read Proverbs, but that's considered a good thing. But then she uses her, her wealth, her prominence to say to Paul, I am going to bless this kingdom. My house will be the house where the church is held. You will not, you will not, Paul, go anywhere else. So she, she, she was clearly a businesswoman because she was very forceful. Um, <laughs> but it actually is funny. Like, she's very aggressive with Paul. You're not going anywhere else. You're staying in my house. Um, and I think that's a beautiful picture of Christians who excel financially. The way that they steward their finances, they steward them well. They, they, they bless their homes, I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. Your, your home as a Christian cannot be your private sanctuary getaway. We, we, as Christians, we have to grow in hospitality. We have to be willing to open up our homes to, uh, to feed, to care for. When people are struggling, they need to feel like they've got a place to come sit on the couch and just open up their hearts and, and process. Our homes should be places of ministry. Um, and we need to lean into that. Um, it's, so what we see, even in the New Testament, there are going to be people who really excel financially, and many of them, they, they continue to live in character. They can, Lydia doesn't say to the poor people, don't you dare sit on my couch. You know, Lydia, I don't think that Lydia had the plastic over her carpet, you know what I'm talking about, that your grandma had? I don't think she had that, okay? Um, Lydia opens her home and says, rich or poor alike, desperate do you, you realize that, again, in the early church, there were lots of slaves? Slaves would have been the bottom 
of the cultural. You don't want to be seen walking around with a slave. What is Lydia doing walking arm in arm with a little slave woman? But Lydia is going to open her front door and say to even the slaves, come in, eat. You need to stay the night. You can stay the night. You need prayer. I'm going to pray for you. My house is always open to you. I'm going to be a blessing to you. And, and here the church becomes this incredibly um, beautiful picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because the blood of Jesus did not just purchase the poor. The blood of Jesus did not just purchase the wealthy. The blood of Jesus wasn't for the white man. The blood of Jesus wasn't for the black man or the Latino man or the Asian man. The blood of Jesus was to purchase the ethnos, the ethnicities, the peoples of the world. And so the church is called to express the heart of God, the efficacy of that blood, the, the effectiveness of that blood in purchasing all peoples. So in the church, a man who, who washes dishes in a kitchen and loves it and ministers can be best friends with a man who's highly successful in executive business work. And their brothers look each other eye in the eye, kneel in the altar, pray for one another. Their financial or social standing has no bearing on the fact that they are brothers perfectly united by the blood of Christ purchased in Jesus. So James is going to get after this. I, like again, have just enjoyed studying, thinking about why James is passionate about this. But James is going to continually say to the church, you dare not walk in prejudice. The Holy Spirit shows no bias. How dare you show bias? That's kind of James's, one of James's big pushes. It's very aggressive, and I like it. Very, I, I like his, uh, his defensiveness. I just enjoy that. Um, <laughs> So here in our body, I think it's, I think it's fitting today that we're signing up for connect groups, right? Like connect groups in our homes, places where we open up our homes to people within the body. And, and we are saying with our homes and with our time, I don't care if your social standing helps me or not, right? Like in the world, you always want to be friends with people who kind of help you, help lift you up in the ladder. In the church, we, we don't, we're not looking at people as if somehow they're an advantage to my life or social standing in the church we open up our homes and say you can be poor as dirt you can be rich as solomon you can be tired you can be addicted you can be struggling my home will be a sanctuary to you i will bless you pray for you my table is open come eat bring your snotty nosed kids not to my house i've got enough snot okay i've got plenty i've got an excess i will if you ever need some, let me know. <laughs> um, do you, you guys kind of hear what I'm saying, though? In, in the church, I think it's really important. As, a, as our church, we've been very passionate about we are going to, period, love and embrace children. We're going to try to pour into the next generation. I think it's huge. Grandparents always have the door open to their grandkids, right? And in the church, we're family. And so I think that's huge, too. Uh, when, when people are like me, this is, maybe I'm... Maybe I'm promoting myself right now. Um, here we go. When people are in my season are younger with lots of kids and life feels chaotic and hectic. There's nothing like an older couple in the church saying, come over for dinner and don't worry about your kids breaking something. They're fine. Like there's, there's a beauty in embracing, loving, caring for all people. Because what we're really trying to say is that the blood of Jesus actually works, purchases all people redeems all people alike. You guys okay with that? Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to pray over the word and then we'll slide into a, a moment of ministry here.
So Father, in Jesus' name, as we get ready to talk about connect groups and doing life together and being the church, we ask that you would rid us of any prejudice. You would teach those of us, those of us who are um, maybe embittered, maybe feel like we always lack favor, feel like uh, we're struggling with a bit of a... Uh, 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 feeling like we can't climb up, Lord, I ask that those would learn to boast in their exaltation in Christ. And Lord, those of us who maybe feel entitled or feel like we're, we're important, would you teach us to boast in our humiliation, to embrace the humility of our suffering servant? Would this church become a safe haven for the ethnos of the world, for every socioeconomic standing? Would the blood of Jesus be declared with power and anointing? In your holy name we pray. The church says amen.